Well, good afternoon. It's good to see you all. For some of you, I think it's your first time in this building, in this place with us, our other home. But uh, welcome here. I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read starting in verse 18, actually the last part of verse 18, and read through to verse 26. Philippians 1, last part of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If you remember... Uh, from last week, from the previous verses, uh, Paul has written about how his imprisonment has affected the, the gospel, affected his mission of spreading the gospel. Uh, contrary to what one might think, being imprisoned might halt the progress. Uh, he has declared that it has, in fact, done the opposite. It has actually served to advance the gospel. There have been new opportunities for him to preach. In fact, he's writing from Rome. He has been brought right into the heart of the Roman Empire and has preached to the Praetorium, this imperial guard, and even those in Caesar's household now believe, as we learn at the end of the book of Philippians. But now we might wonder, the Philippians might have wondered, how Paul managed to maintain such a positive and joyful perspective, despite his obviously less than ideal, we might say, circumstances he found himself on, in, under house arrest in Rome. Despite all the things he has suffered, he yet maintains this attitude. How does he do this? Well, the apostle reveals this to us. He further pulls back the curtain here to reveal his thinking, his mindset. It is a mindset that sets an example for the Philippian church who, as we'll get into More next week, as we finish up chapter 1, we're facing their own opposition, facing their own trials. And he reveals to them his thinking about this that has helped him to endure in his own trial. And central to his answer is one of the more famous verses from Philippians and maybe from the entire New Testament, where Paul says in verse 23, Sorry, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here is the key to Paul's endurance, to his joyful 
endurance. These words in verse 21 are the center of our passage today. They are the central idea, the central truth that stands as the foundation of what we're going to look at today. And these words, as we read them and as we consider them, they seem so very heroic, so triumphant. And they express an attitude, a mindset that seems often to be very elusive, perhaps maybe even so very far from how you feel today and how you think about your present circumstances and the future. You might think, I just don't know really how often I I think this way, that I glory in Christ to this extent, that I hold this loosely to life here on this earth. And yet this is a mindset that really every believer ought to possess and ought to strive to maintain. This is not just Paul, and it's not just for the Philippians either. Now, such thinking does not come from um, some sort of macho kind of tough guy heroism. Rather, it stems from having been purchased by Christ. It comes from the fact that Paul now understands that in both life and death, he belongs entirely to Christ, entirely to his Savior. And so his subjective expression, when he says, for to me, to live is Christ, it is rooted in the objective salvation that he possesses. His identity as being one who now belongs to his Lord, his Lord who is indeed preeminent, Over all things. So if you remember back at the very beginning in verse 1, when he introduced himself and Timothy, he referred to them as slaves of Christ Jesus. Slaves of Christ Jesus. He belongs entirely to his Lord, he's owned by Jesus. This is who Paul is, and he has sought to live his life in light of this reality, to adjust his thinking to this. And because every Christian is indeed purchased by Christ and belongs to him, these words are really, we can think of it as simply a mature expression of Christian faith. They reveal a mindset that all Christians ought to seek and to seek to hold on to. For Paul, these words are not just a nice slogan. They're not just something to put on a poster and hang on the wall or put on a pencil or whatever, wherever we might find it. They reveal to us how he truly understood his identity and his life and his death. And this outlook, this reality affected the way Paul, of course, then viewed and handled trials. Things like imprisonment, things like slander, and even the prospect of his own death. And so we're going to look at this mature declaration, this mature thinking, and see, look at three of its practical results. And so our outline for today, the mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain, First, brings joyful confidence in God's good purposes. Second, brings significance to all of one's life. And thirdly, brings great hope in death. 
So the first thing, this mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain brings joyful confidence in God's good purposes. Now you notice the ESV, as with many other English translations, uh, understand the end of verse 18 to really fit better with verses 19 and following, which is why they uh, put that in the paragraph with verses 19 to 26. And I think this is correct. Uh, this is the right way to understand this. We know that the numbers and, 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 and of verses and so on, this is much later. Paul, when he wrote this letter initially, was not writing little numbers beside them. And so probably most fitting to put this with verses 19 and following. So having already said he would rejoice because Christ is preached even by those people who are doing it in order to, you know, with terrible motives in order to afflict him further in his imprisonment. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. And then he goes on to further explain why it is he will rejoice. He says, for... And then he speaks of his confidence in coming deliverance in verse 19. And then in verse 21, he again says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So all of this, verses 19 to 21, provides the basis, the reasoning for Paul's rejoicing. He's joyful because he is confident in God, even though he's in trial right now, that God is working good in this. And he's joyful because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so this mindset produces joy, which might initially seem counterintuitive. The reason is in our flesh, we think that my joy, and we attach happiness to that, comes in a, a, some form of self-exaltation and self-fulfillment. That everything, if it works out well, as I would hope it would work out, and I am at ease or whatever it might be, then I truly can be joyful and happy. That's how we tend to think. But Paul is saying something quite different, that even as he is imprisoned and maligned and awaiting a somewhat unknown, uncertain fate, he nevertheless maintains joy. It is not placed in his circumstances. It is not placed in having everything work out as he would just draw it up himself. So notice here a better way to joy. In verse 19, he then gives, we'll back up and, and go through verse 19, he gives the first grounds for his joyfulness. So look at that again, his, his, his confidence in the Lord. This is, this is the grounds of his joy. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is joyful first because by means of the Philippians praying for him and the subsequent help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son, then the helper Jesus sent upon his Ascension to the Father's right hand. On account of this, the trial that Paul is enduring here as he writes this letter, his imprisonment, these contentious brothers that we discussed last time, this trial, he's convinced, will turn out for his deliverance. 
Now, there's a question about what he means when he says deliverance, that this is going to work out for his deliverance. That word is the Greek word that is often translated in our Bible as salvation. The vast majority of the time, and almost every time Paul uses that word, he is referring to spiritual salvation that is in Christ. But the word can simply be used to describe a temporal type of deliverance as well, like being delivered from prison. And so the question arises to whether Paul here is speaking of confidence that he's going to be released, delivered from jail, or if he's expressing confidence in his Christian salvation. Certainly his imprisonment is in context here. He's writing from jail. He's going to go on in verses 25 and 26 to express his his confidence that he will, in fact, be released from prison. However, I do think he's expressing here his confidence in his salvation, his confidence in the Lord to continue to do good work in Paul by empowering him as he faces this Roman trial, that he would do nothing in the end that would leave him ashamed before God, but rather that he would make his good confession about Christ, whatever the end result may be. He's saying that none of this that is happening to him, he's confident that none of it is meant to destroy him, but rather is part of God's sovereign plans for him to sanctify Paul, This is what God is planning and bringing him through, the end of which will be Paul's salvation. Now, Paul is not awaiting here his justification as if his standing with God is in limbo or as if all of this trial is going to serve as the grounds of his justification or something like that. He is justified as a gift of God's grace. He received that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is nonetheless not yet, as he writes this, not yet made perfect in his person. There is work yet to be done. Nor has Paul at this point, at writing this letter, has he yet received the full blessings of his salvation. And but all of this that he was enduring, all of this trial was part of the path that was leading him to that end, that God was bringing him through to lead to that end so that he could say with confidence that the end of all of this, however it turns out, it is going to be his salvation, that this is not for his destruction and his shame before God, though some might want to interpret it that way. They might look at his situation and look at him and and want to conclude God has cursed him because, after all, look at what he's suffering. Two plus years he has been bound But Paul believes and understands that God is completing the work that he has begun in him. If you remember in Acts, he said after being stoned and suffering and left for dead, that it was through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Back in verse 6 as well. Paul said this to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's what he's looking ahead to. He's confident that all of this is working together for his good, that at the end, 
he will finally and completely and entirely be purified at the day of Christ Jesus and saved. His trial is part of this process. It is part of God's design and plan for him. And so he says here, he's confident this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is in prison and he's had to grapple with the fact that this could end in either his release or possibly even his death. When he was initially arrested in Jerusalem, you recall they were after his blood, some of them, even lying and scheming in order to end his life. And now as he's appealed to Caesar and he's awaiting this tribunal, there's always been this possibility that he could die. But his eager expectation and hope both of those are, are words often tied to salvation, is that he'll not be ashamed, but rather he would continue to stand with courage, whether that would result in life or death. Again, as he faces this imperial court, he's trusting God to rescue him from temptations, to be ashamed, trusting God that he would be kept and preserved and his faith would not be destroyed, that he would not have reason, therefore, for God to condemn him. He's trusting he will honor Christ, whatever the verdict. And this is not coming from some place of bravado uh, from, from Paul, some sort of careless thinking or thinks he's just a tough guy and he's just saying these things. So it's not what's behind it, but rather it is a profound hope in God's saving and keeping of him. Notice he's already said he's dependent on the prayers of the church. He said, through your prayers and the help of the spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. He knows God uses the means of the prayers of his people to accomplish his ends. He knows he is reliant and dependent on the Spirit to help him and keep him and preserve him. And this is where his confidence lies. We read earlier in Romans 5.3 where Paul writes this. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think this is a similar concept to what Paul is saying here in Philippians. Paul knows that trials are part of God's refining process of his people and the end result would not be that he'll be put to shame at Christ's coming, but rather purified. Again, think of Romans 8, 28, where Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And again, as he has told the Philippians in verse 6 of his confidence that God would complete the work that he has begun in them, he's simply holding out that same hope for himself, that God will finish what he began. 
Interestingly, he does acknowledge here that this could mean that he would still die. He says, whether by life or by death, he's trusting that he would honor Christ. But he's still confident that whatever comes, salvation's his. All things will work together for good. He expresses a very similar thing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely. That's the word. He will save me into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And again, all of this is grounded in what Paul is saying in verse 21. It all gives rise to joyful celebration for Paul because he knows that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is hopeful of salvation because if he lives, then great, God has delivered him from this trial. He will go on to serve the Lord. He will be strengthened and encouraged in his faith by being delivered from that and having stood the test. But even if he dies, he'll have been called home and will have experienced great gain, which we'll see more of in just a moment. Very clearly, Paul is not looking to circumstances to find his joy and his confidence. His confidence is rooted in Christ. His confidence, his joy is in the promise of God to complete the work he begins in those who believe in him, regardless of what we face, what he faces in his lifetime. And this has to be where we place our hope, where we place our joy. This understanding that to live is Christ and to die is gain is very freeing when we grasp it. That does not mean that all circumstances are equally as easy or pleasant. It doesn't mean that pain is not real. It is. But it is a grounds for hope and joy in the midst of that pain and in the midst of those trials. Again, we'll see more next week. The Philippians themselves, as Paul's writing this to them, they're facing their own opposition, their own opponents. And Paul is showing them how to think through this. He's showing them the mindset to have. And it is the same for you and I. And so I'll ask you, do you believe that God is sovereign over all things? Do you believe, do you understand that each trial that you face now and every day is coming to you from his hand, ultimately from his hand? And that he intends it ultimately for your good. Do you believe that if suffering were to come, it would not be for your own ruin, but to further your sanctification? This is what the Bible teaches for those who are in Christ. And this is why we can maintain a joyfulness even in the midst of trial and great difficulty. We just sang about it too, did we not? Every strand of sorrow has its place in this tapestry of grace. That even as we live our lives and we go through sorrow and difficulty and trial, God is putting it all together and working it for good. And the end of it all is Christ's likeness is your salvation.
Secondly, the mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain brings significance to all of one's life. When Paul says to live is Christ, it's not immediately obvious what exactly he means by that, but he does fill it out for us, saying in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And then he gets into this little debate he has with himself about whether he'd rather live and therefore serve, or whether he'd rather die and therefore be with Christ. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But then in verse 24, he says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As Paul considers his situation, he sees the need of the Philippian church, and I'm sure many others as well, but he's writing the Philippians here. And he sees that living would seem to be more important than dying. He sees this for the sake of other people, not primarily for his own sake. For this reason, he's convinced that he'd remain, that he would be released, that he would continue That is, that he would not, in fact, die at this point, but keep living to Christ. And that involved for Paul fruitful labor. It involved for Paul serving the Philippian church. He says, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He knows what their reunion would mean to this church. And how overjoyed they would be that their prayers have been answered, that Paul is free, that they would see this apostle again. Their friend, their co-laborer who they've stood by and supported all these years. Paul had a confidence that he'd be released. That he would go to them and edify them. And the result would be that they would glory in Christ all the more. So then to live as Christ means that Christ becomes the very purpose of one's living. He is the focal point. He is the goal for Paul, the glory of Christ. So for Paul, he would serve his Lord by fulfilling his apostolic ministry. He would fruitfully labor for Christ by preaching the gospel and by building up the churches. This is what life was about for Paul. So long as there is breath in his lungs, this is what he would do. He would spend his breath in service to the Lord who owned him, to whom he belonged. You and I are clearly not apostles, but if you're trusting in the Lord, then you do belong to him. And it's true that your life is not your own. You remember in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he was addressing their Uh, lax attitude, shall we say, on sexual immorality. He told them that they were to glorify God with their bodies. And he told them that on the principle that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You're not your own to simply do whatever you want with your body. You were bought with a price, the price of Christ's own blood. You belong to him. So whatever your station in life, whatever your giftings may be, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life belongs to him. You belong to him. This is a good thing. This is a privilege. This is the way it ought to be. 
You have the privilege and the honor of now living your life to the glory of the one who has saved you. You have the privilege and honor of doing this as you consider your work and your vocation, even if that work may seem insignificant to you. God does not view it so. We've talked about the importance of work and how that was given to man even before the fall. How Ecclesiastes talks about doing our work unto the Lord. And so you are to work as to please your Lord, not to please man, but to do it unto the Lord. As a spouse, if you're married, you get to interact with your husband, your wife, as a Christian. To work at building your marriage into a reflection of Christ and the church. As a parent, you get to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Seeking to point them to him. In your hobbies, you get to honor the Lord in those. By giving thanks to him. By receiving his good gifts to you with joyfulness. In your, even things like eating and drinking, you recall from Ecclesiastes. Receiving these things with joy and thanksgiving to God. And yes, even in your suffering... Again, you have reassurance here that even here your Lord is with you and he will not waste it. It's an opportunity for you to give him glory. And in all of these areas, areas, as you sin and as you fall short of doing this with any measure of perfection, if you're trusting in Christ, you simply confess your failings. You confess your sin to the Lord. He knows it. You acknowledge it to him. And you rest again in the grace and merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you face in life, good or evil, as a believer, there is a way to honor God in it. And this is the goal. All of life is now infused with significance as a result of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, the mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain brings great hope in death. On one hand, this is very, very basic to Christianity. Think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the hope of eternity, eternal life, is very basic to Christianity. A promise of the gospel. It's learned from the very outset. And yet on the other hand, having this view really settle into our hearts is maybe one of the most difficult things. We can affirm John 3.16 pretty easily, especially when everything's going well. But maybe you've considered the thought and shuddered at the thought of having to make that good confession under threat of death. It was this very thing that Paul faced over and over again in his life. We wonder, how could he face it? Well, he could face it because truly he understood that to die is gain. It was not just a slogan. It is the reality for the believer in Jesus Christ. 
Bible, of course, teaches that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Instructs us further in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And again, back at our time in Ecclesiastes, we were reminded over and over again how fleeting this life can be. That even if you live a long life by human standards, it still goes very quickly. And yet we're not even guaranteed that. The Bible is very clear that it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Sin is described, it is defined in the scriptures as violating God's law, transgressing God's law. This can be done in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, through lies. It can be hatred, lust, adultery, failing to honor and worship God, and so on. God is the holy and infinite creator of all mankind who will indeed judge sinners by condemning sinners in their sin for violating his law. And the penalty for that is eternity in hell under the wrath of God. It is an infinite penalty for having transgressed against the infinite God. We don't fully understand just how sinful it is to sin against God. And yet, in his mercy, God has made a way for sinners to be forgiven, to have this record of debt expunged. God has sent his son, the eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to take on human flesh, to become man, to earn righteousness in his life, to pay the penalty for sinners in his death, and to rise again from the dead in victory over the graves. We read in Romans eight, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that we, anybody, has ever cleaned themselves up good enough that God says, okay, now maybe that you're doing so well, I'll, 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 I'll reach down to try to help you. In our pitiful, lost condition. God has acted, and he has made a way for salvation to be had. And God calls all men and women who hear the good news of this full and free pardon for your sins in the name of Jesus to repent of your sin, to place your faith in Jesus Christ. The fact is, we have no, you have no works of your own to merit anything before God. You cannot bribe him. You cannot pay off your debt There is one way to the Father, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is here you must place all of your hope of salvation. In the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to rest your weary soul here. And with that forgiveness, that pardon, comes not just a clean slate, but God fully instates all of his saved ones giving you the title of son, heir, co-heir with Christ, brought into his kingdom, granted eternal life. And so it is that when a believer dies, it is not loss, but it is gain. It is an infinitely better situation than the best day you've ever had on this planet. It is gain. 
In verse 22, Paul reveals this internal debate he had about whether he'd prefer to go on living to Christ or whether he'd rather experience the gain of death. And in verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I don't think Paul's just really light about, the, about life and, and, and death. Uh, he's not just casual about death. He just really does believe the gospel. He really does believe he belongs to the Lord and that to die is gain. So he says, my desire is to depart, meaning to die, and be with Christ. For that is far better. He wants that. He looks forward. He welcomes that day even. Again, this does not mean he's living carelessly, but he understands this. This is why death is gain. When the Christian dies, we lay their body in the grave, but their soul or their spirit, this immaterial part of the being, the person, goes to be with the Lord. And that spirit is perfected. Hebrews 12, 23 refers to the dead believers who've gone before us as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. No more sin. This is describing here what theologians often call the intermediate state, where the soul of the believer upon death goes to be with the Lord. And this, Paul says, is gain. It is far better. Again, this is often called the intermediate state because there is what is a final state or the eternal state. And it is that time in the future when the risen and ascended Lord Jesus will return to earth and when the dead are raised for final judgment and the bodies of believers will be raised, 1 Corinthians 15, imperishable, glorified. And the body and soul will be reunited and perfected forever to dwell with the Lord Jesus Christ in his consummated kingdom and with all of his people. That's where history is headed. That is the eternal state. But even now, to die is gain. Man will not fix this earth. We're not doing very good at it, are we? we we've been trying a long ways. We build up sometimes societies that are a lot better than others. And then we just tear it all down again. We have not overcome man's sinful nature. This whole earth, this whole world is cursed because of man's sin. Ever since the days of Adam, ever since the first sin. It groans Romans 8 talks about. And it is the Lord Jesus who redeems and will establish final justice and eternal peace. This is where our hope lies. And for those in Christ, death is truly gain. This mindset of Paul's will serve you 
in tremendous ways now and into the future, come what may. And we don't know. Come what may. Truly, if you believe the scriptures, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which in that sense, then, truly, you cannot be harmed in any eternal way. God is committed to working all of these things ultimately for your good if you are in Christ. Which is a reason to remain hopeful and joyful, even in the midst of very real pain. I'm not minimizing that. The Bible doesn't minimize that. But this is the truth we cling to. As a Christian, your life is Christ's. Your existence is now to serve him and to magnify your Lord as you have opportunity. In your home, as you have opportunity, in evangelism, working unto the glory of God in every way. All things are being worked by your God for your ultimate good and sanctification. Even death itself, though a painful reminder of sin, is ultimately gain for you. Just as we close here, I want to quote uh, the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. So this is a Reformed Catechism that was written in 1563 in Germany. Hundreds of years ago, and yet I think it's saying precisely what Paul is communicating here, what we read throughout the Scriptures The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that so often we become so enamored by the things of the world and we become perhaps sinfully engaged with the things of the world. Father, I pray that you would would help us to have this perspective. Father, thank you that objectively it is true that as we are, if we are trusting in, in your Son, we belong to you, eternally so. I pray that you would shape our hearts, that you would shape and mold our affections and our greatest desires, that we would want to glorify you in all things, that as we 
again realize how far short we fall, that we would even gladly confess those things to you, knowing that Christ has fully paid for all of our sins. That we are not trying to now pay you back through our good deeds. Father, I pray that you give us confidence in the face of difficulty, that even if we are to suffer loss because of serving Christ, if we are to suffer loss because of our Christian convictions, that we would trust that you would provide and see us through. Father, I pray that you would ease so much of the angst that we experience, wringing our hands about what is to come. Father, we all worry about various things. It's maybe different for all of us, but we have tendencies to worry and to fret. Father, help us to know that whatever comes, you will work all things for good. Father, give us love for one another, that we might bear with one another, that we might mourn with those who are mourning, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. God, we thank you that we can gather and read your word and and worship you together in song and we can pray to you and we can come boldly before you in the name of Jesus because of all that he has done. Father, I pray that you would renew joy in our souls. Help us to truly know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.